0: Welcome to The Shed Wireless, a podcast for shedders, produced by the Australian Men's Shed Association and hosted by John Paul Young. Yeah, there's something for you at The Men's Shed. Hello and welcome to the Shed Wireless podcast, made in Australia and distributed all over the world for the love of shedding. Now, here's what we'll be talking about in this episode. Do you remember a huge hullabaloo in the late 90s when over 1,000 Wharfies lost their jobs overnight? Today's special guest is a little different from what you would come to expect, but I think you'll find it pretty interesting and maybe even something you can recall from the papers or even personal experience. I sat down with Geraldine Feller, a researcher at Macquarie University, to chat about the 1998 waterfront dispute. On the tools, we're back in the kitchen with Adrian Richo Richardson. Richo is warming you up and filling your house full of beautiful smells. Mm. We're getting our groove on at Max Music Shack. We're talking the Beatles and the bands they inspired People don't know about that. Find this playlist on the AMSA YouTube channel. Simply head to YouTube and search up Max Music Shack. Rips back and pondering on staying social. You wouldn't think that would be a problem for him, but there you go. Okay, we won't waste any more time. Let's get into it. You're listening to The Shed Wireless with my good friend, John Paul Young. It's a podcast for Shedders. Across Australia... And around the world, get ready to shed. Yeah, there's something for you at the Men's shed. If you can rewind your memory back to the mid-90s, to 1996 the Howard Coalition government was elected, having made some pretty significant commitments to improving the labour market by restructuring industrial relations. This promise started to come into effect in 1997 with some implications. One of the most well-known stories was the 1998 waterfront dispute between Patrick Stevedores and the Maritime Union of Australia, or the Patrick's dispute, as it is widely known. Overnight, more than 1,400 Wharfies were sacked by Patrick and locked out of many of their 17 sites around the country, and then replaced by non-unionised workers, working for what was titled Scab Wages. What followed was not only court proceedings, but a massive public campaign, including rallies all around the country. Geraldine Feller is a researcher at Macquarie University. Geraldine is currently working on a new national oral history project examining that dispute between Patrick Stevedores and the Maritime Union of Australia, talking to people from all over the country who were in some way involved in the dispute, from waterfront workers to police officers and security guards. Geraldine, welcome to The Shed Wireless. All right, uh, Geraldine, just to get us started, what is an oral history project?
1: Hi, John. Um, It's great to chat to you today. So an oral history project is a project where basically I or whoever the researcher is goes out into the community, sits down with people uh, and asks them to tell them about their lives. Um, And it's usually focused around a particular event. So my our latest project is looking at the 1998 waterfront dispute between mm-hmm. Patrick Stevedores and the Maritime Union of Australia. So I'm I talk to people who are involved in that and record their stories.
0: Now I've done my best to give a very brief rundown of the events in the intro, but can you briefly set the scene for us as as it was back then? I'm I'm sure everybody remembers this. It was huge.
1: Yeah, that's right. It was a huge a huge dispute, and it it transfixed the nation. So. Basically, what happened was uh, on April the seventh, nineteen ninety eight, uh, MUA waterfront workers were locked out of Patrick Stevedoring um, the, out of Patrick Stevedores across the nation. Um, so they showed up to work uh, and, and found the gates locked, uh, and that initiated an enormous conflict and dispute. Uh, between the company and between the union and and really the the whole trade union movement so we're talking huge picket lines on the waterfront uh, in Sydney Melbourne Fremantle and Brisbane in particular but but also elsewhere uh, hundreds thousands of people are on those picket lines uh, so in some places particularly in Melbourne there was a kind of whole tent city set up uh, to feed people music played uh, it was you know, quite an extraordinary um, period of Australian industrial history.
0: Yeah, no, I think a lot of Australians were, were absolutely shocked at the scenes, you know, workers being locked out, unions and supporters in uh, in big numbers on the docks protesting police, dogs, so-called scab labour. Uh, from a historical perspective, how unusual was, uh, was this time? Had there been scenes like this before?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question, John. So, In the immediate lead-up to the dispute in 98, things had been pretty quiet industrially in in, in Australia, Um, but there is a long history from well before that of very sharp disputes on the wharves. So uh, notably in 1928, uh, there was a a big conflict in in Melbourne and Alan Whitaker, who was actually a Gallipoli veteran he was one of the first people who who landed uh at Anzac Cove was shot um he was a wharfian he was he was shot um sort of fifteen years later after that on, on the australian waterfront so there is a um a, there is a long history of of these kinds of you know quiet dramatic quite um, you know significant and sharp disputes uh, but certainly 98 uh, did seem to a lot of people to um, you know it, it was outside the norm of of the decades that had preceded it.
0: We're basically based in the Hunter Valley and there was a there was a very serious one back in the in the 30s I think uh, the Rothbury. Uh, riots and uh, and there was shooting occurred there back back then too yeah now, What was the situation that led to the employer patrick's wanting to sack the workers and and bring an alternative work force up when did the planning for that start
1: yeah so as we kind of as as historians and, and journalists understand it that the planning started about a year beforehand um, but it's also useful to to understand the the context of the new Howard government at the time. So the coalition government had just been elected uh, in 1996. They brought in new or new Workplace Relations Act uh, that did change the relationships between unions and employers. It made it difficult, for example, or harder for um, for unions to to take industrial action. So there was that kind of backdrop. And when John Howard was elected, he'd made some big promises about uh, changing. The wharves about, you know, he talked about cleaning up the waterfront, um, and and you know, essentially big promises to business about what he mm-hmm. would do there. So that that was simmering along, and then about a year beforehand, um, there was discussions started between Peter Reith, the industrial relations minister, uh, and Corrigan and senior public servants um, in, in the federal government about how they might tackle the Maritime Union of Australia. So that that was kind of going on for a few months. There were a few different plans kind of canvassed. Uh, and then in late 1997, uh, the, the Dubai incident kind of began, which was when I think you might have mentioned it before, uh, essentially a, a, set, a, a, a group of mostly ex-military, some military uh, people were employed by a third party uh, and they were, Given passports and visas, it's not entirely clearly by who, but there's some indication that those were fast tracked by the government, uh, and that they went to Dubai to train uh, on, um, you know, the kind of machinery that they would have been that that were used on Australian wharves. Uh, the idea being that they would return. Uh, and be an alternative waterfront, uh, an alternative workforce, sorry, to the existing MUA workforce. So that that kind of had been simmering along for quite a while for, you know, mm. the later half of 97.
0: Do we know of any planning between Patrick's, uh, the employer and, and the government?
1: Yeah, we do. We do. So, you know, these things are often, you know, a little hard to categorically prove. Um, but there's some very key journalists, so Helen Trinker and Anne Davies, um, who wrote a book, uh, and they actually had access to quite high level documents that did show there were meetings happening uh, between uh, Peter Reith and, and Corrigan. So there was pretty clearly some planning and discussion uh, happening around how, um, around changing um, what was going on on, on the wharves. And, and certainly, so on the 7th of April, um, the lockout occurred on the eighth of April, so just the very next day, Reith came to the media uh, with a you know a huge full package uh, of of money of funding essentially that would pay for redundancies for all the MUA workers on the wharves. So it's I think that's a quite a clear indication that there was some coordination uh, between the government and 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 um and Chris Corrigan.
0: Right. Now, back to the lockouts, the union movement uh, nationally uh, rallied, of course, as they always do. Now, the ACTU, the workers and their families picketed. Just what sort of scenes were witnessed when all of that was going on?
1: Yeah, so these were... um, So because of the the new laws that had come into place, it was actually illegal to picket. Um, So these weren't officially pickets, they were community assemblies. Um, So they were, you know, usually hundreds often thousands of people, uh, workers and their families, but also the much broader community. So on Sunday there would actually be church services uh, down on the waterfront. Um, like I think I mentioned before you'd have bands playing. It was a real cross-section of people right. who came down to, to show their support. So they were quite... Um, you know, they kind of became community hubs in some ways.
0: Now, after the court victory, uh, what was the the situation on the docks? Uh, of course, the workers were reinstated, but initially without pay. Was the was the return to work a, a difficult process?
1: Yeah, so it was it was quite a unusual situation, John. So on the seventh of May, uh, people the the workers went back to work. They went back through the gates, um, but they went back without pay, and that was. it's a bit complicated but basically the way that um patrick's had got had um had initiated the initial lockout was that they they'd moved uh their money out of patrick's so they kind of had moved their money out of the company uh, and gone into voluntary administration um which rendered those jobs redundant it's it's very complicated kind of financial stuff, but
0: very um, sneaky,
1: <laughs> it was, yeah, a little sneaky. Yeah. Um, so when the workers went back, there was actually no money to pay them. Um, so people were working for no pay for a very, very long time. Uh, and then for a period of time working for kind of, you know, 60, 40, 40 cents in the dollar kind of thing. Uh, so it was a really um, challenging time. And, uh, one story, actually, that that someone I spoke to the other day told me that really um, I found very moving was that on the the first day that they got their first paycheck, so months into working um, for no pay, uh, one man who'd been working on the wharves for 35 years uh, hadn't had an accident, fell off for a, a pile of containers four high, and actually died. Um, so you know the the work. I guess it's just a reminder of how dangerous and difficult that work is that waterfront workers perform um, yeah. and the sacrifice that they made when they worked for no pay for so long.
0: Yeah, that's that's amazing. I, I actually wasn't aware of that, so that is yeah. uh, that is incredible. Now, both, both sides claim victory two decades on. The Maritime Union of Australia maintains its near monopoly of the waterfront. Uh, while Patrick won significant increases in profitability. So, uh, you know, who do you think the winners and losers were in this?
1: Oh, it's such a hard question, John. (laughs) This one I'm really grappling with. Look, I don't think there's a clear-cut answer here. Um, Certainly what um, Patrick's wanted and what the Howard government really wanted, which was the end of the MUA on the waterfront, didn't happen. Uh, so in that sense, I think that's a victory uh, to the Maritime Union. But on the other hand, there were really significant changes on the wharves. The, the work culture changed because there was you know, increased productivity targets, increased casualisation, uh, things, things really changed in terms of conditions. Uh, and that had an impact on the wharves, but also, I think, on the broader uh, trade union movement. Um, So I don't think you can say either way that it was a victory to to one side or the other. Mm. Um, And, you know, in the decades on, we have seen uh, declining union density. Uh, Certainly when um, John Howard came back in kind of 2005, 2006 with work choices, uh, that was another attempt to kind of change the terms of employment in Australia. Um, So... Yeah, not, not, not a clear-cut victory or, or defeat either way, but I think another way of thinking about it is if Patrick's had been successful uh, and had managed to, to keep those workers locked out and, and employ a new workforce, that would have been truly disastrous for um, the trade union movement. So I guess perhaps a defeat averted is a victory in, a, in, in some way, but, mm. yeah, interesting question.
0: Yeah, well, you know, um, I'll have to disclose now that I've been a union member all my life, <laughs> so, so there's, no, there's no worries about where my sympathies lie. <laughs> and, uh, but thank you very much, Geraldine. I wish you every success uh, with, with this project. That it, it sounds really fascinating. And I can tell you that when I get on the freeway, every time I see one of those red and uh, yellow Patrick car transporters, uh, even though it was 25 years ago, it takes my brain straight back to that that time. Uh, so I wish you every success with it, Geraldine.
1: Oh, thanks so much, John. And look, if any of your listeners out there were involved in the dispute in any way, maybe you're a waterfront worker, maybe you're a police officer on the line, any of those, you know, any, any involvement really at all, I would really love to have a chat to you. So um, I think, I think um, John might be putting up my email on on the the blurb of the podcast. So, yeah, Yeah. love to hear from you.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Thanks very much, Geraldine.
1: Thanks so much, John. Really appreciate it. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
2: Hello, I'm Sean McAuliffe here, and you're listening to The Shed Wireless with John Paul Young. But you already know that, don't you? I mean, obviously, you've you've already got this set up on Spotify. You don't need me to tell you this. Take it away, John. Yeah, Here's something for you at the men's
0: shed? On the Tools. On the Shed Wireless. With John Paul Young. Okie dokie, here we go. On the Tools with Marty. And we're
3: all about winter cooking. Over to you, Marty. Thanks, JPY. And once again, we have our very good friend of the Men's Sheds here in the kitchen, the master of meat, once again, owner of several restaurants, including La Luna, the Bouvier Bar, I hope I pronounced that right. And um, I think there's the Marvel State. you got a new one at the Marvel Stadium, I think. Mr. Adrian Richardson, thanks for coming along again, mate.
2: Absolute pleasure. And I will add another restaurant to the stable. We've uh, got wow. Boss. In Brisbane, which is um, which is going well up there, and soon we'll be opening uh, Avery Bar up there as well. So the stable is getting bigger and bigger. So it's um, it's wow. very exciting times at the moment.
3: Not enough of you to go
2: around.
1: <laughs> oh
2: never... at... well, there is actually. If you have a look at me, there's plenty <laughs> to get around. All
3: right. Uh, well, mate, autumn is fantastic. We are coming into winter. It is starting to get cool, and uh, we've already had the fire going a couple of times at my place. And um, you know, not my favourite time of the year, but what I do love about winter is some of the winter recipes. I love the casseroles and the roasts and things like that. Do does the menu change a little bit more coming into winter to keep, you know, we've got to put some warmth in our bellies.
2: Yeah. Well, for me, um, I, I love this. I love winter. It's just, you can, you, you just fill the house with, with beautiful smells. And because some of the things take a lot longer to cook, the smells stay for a lot longer. Um, you know, even you come in the next day and you've got, you know, last night's curry. You can still yeah. smell it as you're coming uh, through, through the uh, front
3: door. Yeah, that's that's one of the best parts, isn't it? Is just people coming and going, Oh, what's cooking? You know, and, and like I remember coming home from school, and Mum would be cooking a roast, and you could just smell it before you even put your key in the door to walk in the front door. Yeah, it's just it's just amazing. So it's, it really does. I know there's something about winter and the meals. It's like a it's it's like a beautiful way to to, to while the months away is to eat. I think anyway.
2: Exactly, so, exactly. You need, yeah. you need you need nutrition. And yeah. no, there's nothing beats, uh, you know, roasted uh, roasted piece of, roasted lamb leg with garlic and rosemary in it. Nothing beats that. But, it, but one of the other things that um that I do a lot in, in wintertime is I'll also make a lot of stocks and broths, right. and, you know, yeah. beef stock and chicken stock. And the flavour of that or the aroma of that going through the house is also incredible. I like that sort of smell. You know, is, that beautiful – it's like Nonna's Kitchen.
3: Is it hard to make your own stock? Like I'm, yeah. I'm pretty much a packet man usually, but, you know – but.
2: Well, well in about 10 minutes' time, you're going to be an expert, I'll tell you that. Stocks, especially if you're going to be braising and making curries and casseroles, those sorts of things, you need a liquid and you need that liquid flavour. And stocks are a hell of a lot easier to make than you think. And it starts with... You know when you go to your butcher shop, um, there'll be a, um, you know, your chicken bones. Um, this is probably the easiest one to make is grab some chicken bones from uh, from your from your butcher, a couple of kilos. You might even find them in a supermarket, you know, and you'll see that the breasts and the legs have been taken off. There's plenty of, um, you know, a little bit of meat on the bones, but that's important. So if you get the chicken bones um, and pop them into a pot, make sure it's a pot where you can cover the bones with liquid. Um, and then on top of, you put the bones in the in a pot and then pour cold water over the top of it. till it covers the bones. uh, And into that, I put, you know, half a carrot chopped up, half a celery chopped up, uh, half an onion chopped up, and then, you know, a bit of garlic if you've got it. Um, If you've got some some manky parsley around, you can put that that sort of stuff in. And then what you do is turn it on and bring it just up to the boil and then turn it down for a gentle simmer. Now, when it comes up to the boil, you will notice a little bit of, um, it looks like foam on the top of it, just with a ladle, take that off. And then put a little bit of salt in there, a little bit of pepper in there. And then it cook for about two hours, just gently simmering away. Now, during that time, you might need to top it up with some cold water because it will evaporate for a little bit. And once the two hours have passed, turn it off and then strain, the, um, strain it through a colander. So you want to keep the liquid and the bones and the uh, little bits of vegetables and stuff, you can pop them into the bin. But the liquid, when you taste that, will have the essence of the chicken in there. It will have that beautiful aroma. And you'll smell it as it's cooking. You'll be like, oh, I'm onto something here. And that natural flavor that you've got out of the bones um, is what you would look at. That's what you would use in your cooking. Another beauty of it is that, you know, an animal, we've, we've, we've killed a chicken to eat the breast and the leg and the wings and yeah. those sorts of things, yeah. but the bones, you know, we're actually utilising the bones as well to extract the flavour out of that. So we're sort of doing the animal justice by using every part of it. So, yeah. you know, that, that's, that's, that's an important thing to me.
3: So what, what's actually happening during the boil? Is it just drawing the marrow and things like that out of the bone? or
2: Yeah, you're using the, the, the bones and the little bits of meat on the, on the bones uh, have flavour in it. And by simmering it away, um, you're extracting the the flavour from the bones and the meat into the liquid. Um, there's some magical, amazing. Um, it's called science, I think. But um, but well, um, yeah, I've the flavour yeah. goes into the liquid. And look, you can make a fish stock. Uh, you cook it a lot earlier, a lot quicker. Um, you can make a beef stock, a lamb stock. There's so many stocks to make. But look, the chicken's the easy one to start with, and that yep. gives you that broth. And what you do with the the liquid then is You know the old takeaway containers that you've got. You know, there's a hundred thousand of them in your pantry. You pop pop the liquid into the um, into a a couple of uh, takeaway containers, pop the lid on, mark it, put a label on it. Always label stuff you put in the freezer, and then pop it into the freezer. So when you want to make a soup, when you want to make a casserole, when you want to make just even a chicken broth or something, you've got it there ready to go. You know, microwave it if you want to defrost it quickly, or just throw it in the pot. And you've got that beautiful flavour. And sometimes something I'll do, um, if I've got the chicken stock, I'll put it into a pot, bring it up to the boil, put some miso in there, and you've got a beautiful miso soup um, with lots of flavour.
3: Yeah, yeah. So it's a similar process with different bones, like beef, etc. Yeah, you. well...
2: Yeah, I mean, with the beef bones, if I want a more uh, a stronger, um, stronger, darker flavor, um, I would roast the bones in the oven, and when you roast them, it's, it smells like roast beef, and then you're adding that roast beef flavor to a liquid, and we're using that liquid in the casserole that we make um, instead of using water or the or the packet stuff. You've actually got that that real essence, you know, going into it, and you will notice the difference. Um, in what you're cooking if you're using stocks it just has that better you know that better flavor yeah that's what we use in the kitchens um in professional kitchens we make liters and liters of stock uh, you know on, on, a, on a on a good day they might punch out 80 liters of stock which will reduce down and that becomes the essence of um of of that becomes the essence that, that goes through the dishes that we make and the yeah, sauces wow. as well. So, really important part of cooking.
3: Yeah. Plus, it gives you a bit of a sense of achievement to do it yourself. I suppose. Exactly. To make it
2: yourself and as well. I, I love racist. it. Yeah. yeah. It, it, on, on my, like, there'll be a Sunday. Sunday, you'll come in here. It'd be lunchtime. I've got i I've got a chicken stock on the on, on the boil. I love cooking them. I think
3: they're, they're they're a beautiful thing to have. Yeah. No. Brilliant. Brilliant. So so, what are we roasting? What are you What are you roasting during the the winter months?
2: Uh, for me, um, I like a standing rib of roast. Um, I have three teenage boys and they eat like horses. So <laughs> I'll, I'll go to, I mean, I buy, I buy my meat wholesale, so I'll probably buy a, a slightly larger one than most people. And I leave the fat on the outside. So you've got the ribs standing up. You've got the, um, the big, uh, it's basically the, uh, the cube roll or the scotch fillet or the ribeye on the bone. Um, a good two kilos in, in total. A lot of it's bone. Um, and with a fat on the outside into the oven, it goes, I I like to cook at about 175 degrees Celsius. So it cooks sort of low and slow and gently all the way through, especially with larger pieces. If you cook it too high a temperature, I find the outside of it goes a little bit too dark. um, and the inside's quite rare. So by cooking it at a lower temperature or, you know, it sort of cooks a lot more evenly throughout. Another yeah. thing that I try and do if I'm cooking larger pieces of meat is I'll actually take it out and pop it on the bench for, you know, about an hour, an hour and a half, especially in winter time, It doesn't matter how long it's sitting there. In An hour and a half, two hours, just make sure there's no flies on it. Um, yeah. And I find that that helps, to, um, that helps to, uh, to bring it up to room temperature. It helps to even the cooking time out. So it might be, you know, seven, eight degrees in the center of it when you put it in the oven. That's a lot different to two degrees. You know, yeah, so it's going to cook right. yeah. a little bit, a little bit more evenly throughout, and that helps to um to make a much more delicious uh, joint of beef at the end.
3: And is there a bit of a time to to wait ratio sort of thing for cooking meat? Is, it, is there a standard, or it's just you
2: know? yeah? It, well, it's it's like um people are often ask that, and and look, I think there's things where they say it's um it's like a you know like forty minutes per kilo for this particular piece of meat. Uh, um, for me. I use a digital thermometer uh, when I cook pieces of meat because a digital thermometer gives you the internal core temperature. So if I know the temperature of the inside of that piece of meat, I know how it's cooked. And I'll give you an example. If I want it to be uh, rare, you know, 35 degrees Celsius is rare. If I want it to be medium rare, you know, it's 45 degrees Celsius. Medium, 55 degrees Celsius. And it sort of goes up from there. So what I find with that is that if, you know, it's a big chunk of beef, it's in the oven, you know, is it cooked on the on the, on the inside? Well, the, having a digital thermometer, they're worth about 35 bucks. It yeah. gives you x-ray vision. So it's telling yeah. you, it's like a superpower. It's telling you what the temperature <laughs> is on the inside. And, you know, especially if you're cooking uh, chicken or or pork or you're cooking uh, turkey, those white meats, you want yeah. to get them up to 72 degrees. And by knowing that internal temperature, you're, you're, you're getting it bang on, the way you want it without overcooking it and without undercooking it. So that's how I work it out. It's a lot more accurate. You know, it's that amazing thing science. And, yeah. you know, by knowing those numbers, it will change your cooking. And you can also use a thermometer in cooking steaks as well, you know. I tell people yeah. when they first start cooking a steak, use a thermometer, um, probe the steaks. When it gets to that temperature, take it off, let it rest, and, you know, and you'll have it cooked bang on every time. And if you're on a barbecue, yeah. don't tell anyone you've got a thermometer. Don't let them see it. i will just be <laughs> an, ace chef, uh, an ace steak cook. Yeah. Oh, don't worry. I've got
3: everyone fooled at my place, mate. Don't worry. Don't worry about that. No, that's fantastic. What about, I okay, guess, so one of my favourites is the soups and the casseroles and the stews. You know, I used to love mum's stew. Do you have a favourite stew or casserole? Oh,
2: I'm, I'm, a, I'm a curry man. Um, yeah, right. I, I spent, uh, my dad was in the Air Force. We grew up in Malaysia. I just love, uh, I just love curries from all parts of Asia, whether it's India, uh, Burmese curries, uh, Vietnamese curries, um, Malaysian curries, uh, Thai curries. I love them all. And they're really easy to do. I mean, you can go buy a piece of um, beef uh, oyster blade, uh, cut that up, and cook a cook a you know a vindaloo, or you can do. I mean there 's so many great curry pastes that you can buy in jars and they 're all really really good um, and it 's a simple thing of sweating off the curry paste to get the flavor adding um, your beef and then sweating that off and then adding you know your stock and some coconut milk and you know maybe a little bit of coriander and letting it simmer nice and slowly you can even put them in the oven and some people have crock pots but a really simple curry that i've you know a really simple curry that I've taught people to do if they've never made it before they don't know what they're doing. A nice Thai green curry paste bought from the store, some chicken breast, a can of um, a can of curry, uh, coconut milk, and a little bit of water. You sweat the curry paste off. You add your coconut milk and you add the water. Stir it all around, and it looks like a lovely sort of thick sauce. Slice the chicken breast nice and thin. Pop it in. Let it cook for a couple of minutes and bang, you've got a quick curry. If that's the wow. first one you've made. And it's like, oh, have a taste of that. It's cooked really quickly. We know the chicken breast is going to cook all the way through. And hopefully if you if you get the hang of that, then you can start moving on to, you know, more tender, more, more, more um, uh, secondary cut meats, which will take longer to cook, but you'll have the basic formula of cooking
3: the curry. Brilliant. Yeah. God, you know how to make a mouthwater, don't you? Unbelievable. <laughs> Unbelievable. Brilliant. Mate, oh, look, I can't wait to get into it. I love, you know, I've. It's something I'm later in life I'm sort of starting a job. You know, the kids are grown up, um, you know, more time to cook and you don't have to worry about what the kids will or won't eat, so I'm experimenting a lot more. Uh, it's like a whole new lease of life. Yeah. You know, yeah. that I'm finding, getting into the kitchen and experimenting a little bit more. So it's been a real pleasure and privilege to talk to you, mate. So thank you very much.
2: Absolute pleasure. Anytime. I love sharing recipes. That's what, that's what I'm here for.
3: Brilliant. We've got a couple of books for Adrian. Uh, Adrian's written a couple. I've read, I've read a book before. I haven't written any yet, but I'll get around to it. avery has got a couple of books. My favourite of all of his books is just simply called Meat. I love it. Brilliant. Every tip you can ever, ever get about cooking meat. And you can also catch him on Good Chef, Bad Chef every afternoon pretty much on Channel 10. The Chef's Secret on Facebook under the Brighter page. Check him out. Get to know Richo, get to know Richo and uh, you're going to love some of these meals. Thanks again, Richo. Happy winter to you, mate. We'll talk to you coming up in the spring,
2: eh? Absolute pleasure. I can't wait.
3: Excellent. Thank you so much.
2: I love cooking and eating in winter.
0: What's your winter recipe go to? Send me the recipe to the shed wireless at menshed.net. But only if it's a good one. G'day you mob, this is Ernie Dingo, and you're on the Shed Wireless with my mate, John Paul Young, or JPY, or I don't know what other leathers we're gonna call him. But don't forget, fellas, if you don't have a hammer. Use a screwdriver. Here's something for you at the mansion. Okay, let's walk down the road and visit Max Music Shack. G'day, Mac. How are you? Very well. How are you, mate? Yeah, pretty good, pretty good. Now, this is uh, going to be quite interesting, this little session. We're going to talk about the uh, incredible competition and juxtaposition of. Uh, of the, the British bands in the 60s um, basically going backwards and, uh, and picking up a lot of their stuff from earlier American stuff and then later on actually Americans starting to copy what the British had done yeah. and we're going to kick it off with Please Please Me by The Beatles. Well, that's right and that, that was The Beatles' second
4: single and it was a huge improvement on, um, on Love Me Do and uh, it was written by John alone. And uh, it. what drove this uh, musical progression, this incredible progression that happened from 1963 to 69, you know, the, you went from Please Please Me to Abbey Road, was uh, a, a competition between John and Paul trying constantly to outdo each other. Mm-hmm. And this in turn dragged all of the other acts along because they felt they had to compete with the Beatles. Right. So, <laughs> which, of course, they did. And so, uh, uh, as I said, uh, Please Please Me was a bit of a leapfrog from Love Me Do. And then... Um, then came, uh, oh, Well, let's talk about a uh, couple of the other examples that we're going to use to illustrate the point. Mm. The, the Beach Boys... Uh, they had their Surfing Cars and Gals songs and uh, all, all of those songs sort of based on Chuck Berry riffs, really. Yep. Uh, uh, and they, were, they actually predated the Beatles, so they were very successful uh, for, before the Beatles came along. And then another example I'm going to use is Eric Burden, and he had a huge hit with uh, House of the Rising Sun. Uh, yes,
0: written by John Ledbetter. Yeah, well, I think
4: it's actually. Apparently, yeah. It's actually. uh, 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 It's usually. It's called a traditional song. Mm -hmm. And so what happened was Alan Price, uh, the band uh, came up with an arrangement for it, and Alan Price claimed the credit as the arranger, which gives you all of the songwriting royalties. Wow. Eric Burden was very, very disappointed in him about that (laughs) and eventually let him. to uh, for Alan Price to leave the animals and uh,
0: uh, yeah, it's a good example of the skullduggery that used to go on with uh, some of the African American uh, yeah, um, well, people from way back. You know how they got stolen, all, all of their music got stolen. Yeah. That's
4: right, that's right. And the other the other one that we I thought we'd use as an example is the uh, the Rolling Stones. Of course, the great rivals of the Beatles. Mm. And the, the song that we're playing of theirs is I Want to Be Your Man, which was actually written by John and Paul, of course.
0: Yeah, I'm going, hang on a minute, that's a Beatles song. <laughs> yeah, well,
4: what happened was uh, they, they, the um, the Stones had had a minor hit with a Chuck Berry song called Come On, and they were really struggling to come up with a, what they were going to follow it up with. Hmm. Uh, their manager, Andrew Lou Goldman, Came across John and Paul one day leaving a function, and they were they had a couple of sheets to the wind. And he mm. said, "Oh, do you want to come down and uh, see if you know give the Stones a hand to uh, come up with something?" So they said, "Yeah, sure, why not?" They turned up, and uh, Lou Goldman said, "How about you write a song for them?" And they said, "Okay." And so they sat down and they'd started the song, I Want to Be a Man. It was uh, it was always meant as a, as a Ringo song. And uh, so they sat down and finished that off. The Stones were amazed. They just wrote this song. They just wrote this song. <laughs> and, uh, 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 of course, the Stones put their stamp on it. it uh, it's quite a bit different to the Beatles version yeah. sung by Ringo. but. That inspired their manager to say to Jagger and Richards, you've got to start writing your own material. You've got to start songwriting.
0: Right. Uh, that was the catalyst. Then. That
4: was the catalyst right. for them. And, uh, uh, okay, so the next song was uh, Hard Day's Night. And at this time, John Lennon was just a force of nature. He, he, uh, he dominated the Beatles of the 14 songs on A Hard Day's Night, he wrote and sang nine of them. Mm. You know? and, uh, and Paul McCartney was, uh, I mean, a very, very able second stringer, but he was a second <laughs> I stringer. I think
0: so, yes. <laughs>
4: <laughs> second stringer to, uh, to Lennon. And uh, Lennon was the undoubted leader of the band. What they, they, they always prided themselves that it was a democracy and that they had a veto. Yeah. But what John Lennon said... That's what went, you know. He, yeah. he, he really ruled them and
0: uh, dominated the whole thing. Now, this next one is a favourite of mine because, uh, you know, I, it was a favourite when I was a kid. And then when I was in, uh, in, in the theatre, as you were as well, Mac, uh, eight I'll, shows a week, <laughs> not yeah. eight days a week, eight <laughs> shows a week.
4: <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's interesting because it was a song that John and Paul wrote together and, and Paul more so than John and Paul was very, very keen for it to be a single and they worked on it in the studio for two days and uh, they tried all sorts of different arrangements and different intros. As a matter of fact, it, I think it, 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 uh, that what they ended up with was the first ever fade in on a record. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, but after two days of working on it, John Lennon liked to record very quickly and he he was sick of it. Mm. And uh, so he went home that night and he wrote I Feel Fine, came in the next day, taught it to the others. They came up with an arrangement, they recorded it, and he said, there's the next
0: single. Ah, (laughs) and it was too. I mean, I remember when that was released. It was just something else. It was something really special. Yeah. Now, we'll go back to Eric Burden and the animals... And uh, we've got to get out of this place, which, uh, funnily enough, ACDC did a cover of. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, Eric Eric Burden was in the Beatles' circle. They used to call him Eggs for some reason. I don't know. They all always called him Eggs. And he (laughs) hung around with them. And he, you know, like. The success that the Beatles were having, Eric Burden was a very ambitious young man and he wanted some of that and he -hmm. he realised that if he stuck to his blues music, he probably wasn't going to uh, achieve the same sort of success. So he employed uh, Mickey Most, who was a a famous and very, very successful and very commercial producer, Mm
0: -hmm.
4: to produce him. Um, Mickey Most... Uh, Eric Burden wasn't confident about his songwriting ability and uh, probably quite rightly at the time. (laughs) And uh, so uh, Mickey Most contacted the Brill Building people and got a whole heap of pop songs The Brill
0: Building in New York, responsible for all the, uh, just about all of the early 60s American hits. Yeah,
4: and the Beatles had more or less put the kibosh on them because uh, writing their own material and everything. Yeah. So they, a whole heap of songs were commercial songs written by the likes of Carole King and Man and Wheel, who mm-hmm. were very, very famous songwriters of the time, and sent those over. And so Eric Burden had this great run of really good pop songs, but with his vocal on it, very impassioned vocals, and he picked the right ones, you know, they sort of really suited the, uh, the tone of his voice. And... Uh, so he had, a, he had a heap of success with uh, that one. And uh, So little, who wrote
0: Got to Get Out of This Place?
4: Uh, I think it was Man and, Man and Wheel wrote it. Okay. Uh, it was originally meant for the Righteous Brothers, actually. Oh, okay. And, uh, uh, and Help Me Girl has always been a real favourite of mine. It's a great commercial single mm-hmm. sung great by, great by uh, Eric Burden. It was actually written by uh, Scott Walker. From the Walker Brothers. Oh, okay, yeah. 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 So you know he and it's forgotten now that Eric, how big Eric Burden was in those days. He had a real run of um, great commercial singles. Mm. Uh, So then we get to Day Tripper, and we can work it out. Mm -hmm. Paul had Paul. uh, We can work it out. Was Paul's song. And uh, from the time they recorded it, everybody was saying, this is going to be the next single, this is going to be the next single. And uh, there was nothing else on the horizon until John Lennon thought, nah, nah, I'm the A-side man and he came in with Day Tripper and... uh, Still, Paul McCartney wanted the A side, wanted the A side, and John said, no, day trip is the one, day trip is the <laughs> one, and eventually a compromise was reached where they made it the first double A side.
0: Okay. But <laughs> but we
4: could work it out, was always considered the B side of a, of a double-sided hit. Uh, so... I'm just trying to find where we're up to. Nowhere Man.
0: Nowhere Man. Well, there you go. How, how apt. You lost your place, Nowhere Man, <laughs> and there it is,
4: Nowhere Man. Exactly. So Nowhere Man and, uh, and the next song, In My Life, are off the uh, Rubber Soul album.
1: My favourite.
4: Yeah. It's, it's a lot of people's favourite album. And the, the surprising thing about it, it was made, it was written and recorded in under four weeks. Wow. Uh, it was the first time they'd, they'd just come off a tour and they had four weeks and they had to have it finished before they went back out on tour. And so they were riding overnight and coming into the studio. A couple of times they had to cancel recording sessions because they, they, they couldn't come up with anything overnight. Oh. Uh, but once again, it, it, was, it was John Lennon's record. Uh, Paul had some great songs on it, but it really was John's record in my life.
0: One of the most beautiful songs ever, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, we're going to go back to the Beach Boys. I mean, you know, they, they really got uh, a bit of a spurt on from the Beatles, didn't they? They really changed their vibe. That's right. Well, Brian Wilson, the, the, the main writer for
4: the Beach Boys, He had a sort of a mini breakdown and uh, he decided that he wasn't going to go on tour anymore and that his job would be to stay home and make the records. Mm -hmm. And uh, he he loved Rubber Soul. He's often been quoted as saying it was the most perfect album that had been made up to that point. He absolutely loved it and that spurred him that, we're going to get out of this cars, gals and surfing uh, routine. And uh, while Mike Love, who used to write all of those lyrics, was out on tour, he got another lyricist and um, there was not nary a mention of surfing or cars or anything. Yeah, in the they lot.
0: got more real.
4: And they made this, and he made this album virtually by himself with the help of the, the Wrecking Crew, the famous session band from... yes.
0: So this is Pet Sounds. We're talking about. This is about. Pet yeah. Sounds. Yeah, what and, a great uh, album. Yeah, and the
4: surprising thing it was uh, it was never very successful as far as sales go. Pet Sounds, but it, uh, well, Andrew Lou Goldman, the Rolling Stones manager, he went so far as to take out ads at his own expense in the um, in the British uh, music papers, saying you gotta get onto this record. Well, it know? was mo-
0: it was responsible for possibly. Well, definitely, I say the Be- the Beach Boys' biggest song, and also the one that everybody knows. You know, everybody knows "Good Vibrations." You yeah. Know.
4: Well, uh, God only knows is is the one from Pet Sounds, which Paul McCartney to this day still says is the most perfect pop record ever made. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> he says you can't beat that. You yeah. can't beat that. And so. Uh, The rest of the Beach Boys, especially Mike Love, uh, they didn't like Pet Sounds at all. And uh, Mike Love said, we should stick to our formula, you know, Mm. and and really put pressure on Brian Wilson. Uh, And Brian Wilson started a record called Smile. And Mm. uh, during the making, just before he started on that he made the, the song Good Vibrations, which was going to be the centrepiece of Smile. And uh, I th- I like it better than God Only Knows. I think it's probably... The- I do too. Yeah. Yeah. It's a Absolutely. great, great song. It's an amazing song. And uh, But during the sessions for this album, Smile, Brian Wilson unfortunately succumbed to the pressure and had a massive nervous breakdown, which took him years to... Mm. To recover from. Uh, But uh, I commend to anybody, if you've never listened to Pet Sounds on headphones, go and listen to it. It's something else. It's something else. Uh, Now back to the Stones. Yeah, well initially the Stones, their songwriting efforts were a bit mediocre and uh, it took them a fair while to hit their straps and there was a lot of pressure from their manager to to start coming up with better material yeah. and uh uh they were working day and night Keith Richards actually he he was asleep one night woke up with the riff for satisfaction in his head he had a cassette tape next to the bed he recorded the riff and went back to sleep and then mm-hmm. and they just from that point on they just seemed to go to another level of yeah. their songwriting you know uh uh, the the next song after that, um, Get Off Of My Cloud, is one of my all-time favourite yeah, records. Yeah, me
0: too. Uh, Can't blame a man because he doesn't wear the same... No, smoke the same cigarettes as me, that's <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and
4: uh, the, the interaction between um, people is interesting here because Paul McCartney was, as I say, a huge fan of Pet Sounds and... So Revolver is really his answer uh-huh. to Pet Sounds. And it's something strange happened here. People who are in the Beatles circle said that at around about this time, John Lennon seemed to lose his ego and uh, he, he just wasn't as competitive as what he had been previously. It's like the first single from from Revolver was Eleanor Rigby and Yellow Submarine, which was the first single that, well, it was a single that had very little involvement from John Lennon other than performing on Yellow Submarine. Uh And yet he just, hmm, okay. (laughs) I'm sure it's him doing the funny voices in the (laughs) background. So Eleanor Rigby and Yellow Submarine... Came out as a double-sided single, and then they started work on *Revolver*, which is these days really seen as Paul's album. Paul had usurped Lennon as the as the real leader of the Beatles at this time, right. and uh, I, I figured. My favourite song of Revolver has got to get you into my life. And I thought we'd, we'd finish off the playlist with that. Okay. And if we think back to Please Please Me, where that was only three years earlier. Yeah. What a difference.
0: Yep. What an amazing, what an amazing history, uh, you know, the Beatles and, you know, the Beach Boys and the Stones and Eric Burden and the Animals, all part of the incredible... Uh, history of the 60s music. Thanks very much, Mac, and uh, we'll uh, pop in for another chat one day. And uh... We'll do the second part of uh, this show and
4: uh, go up to Abbey Road. And
0: Okay, and as usual, we have the song list out there. We've got all those songs there for you, and uh, that's on the Men's Shed YouTube. You can listen to Mac's latest playlist on the AMSA YouTube channel. Simply head to YouTube and search Mac's Music Shack.
1: Nailed it! Nailed it! Nailed it! Nailed it. <laughs> Nailed it! With Rip Woodchip.
5: G'day, Shadows. Rip Woodchip here. How y'all going today? I've just come back from me morning walk. Mind you, it wasn't much of a walk this morning. I tend to work my jaw bones more than my leg bones. Yeah, I tend to stop and chat every Tom, Dick and Harry I come across. Sometimes I barely make it to the end of the street before it's time to turn around again. No wonder the dog's getting so fat. Yeah, I'm a social creature, alright. But aren't we all? (laughs) I was watching that show on TV last night where they chuck a bunch of people in the bush to fend for themselves and see how long they can last. Now, you'd think the thing that would force you out quick smart would be the freezing bloody cold or the starvation or the wild animals. But you know what most of them couldn't handle? Was the isolation. Being alone. One poor bugger only lasted one night before he was screaming to get out of there. Barely enough time to pitch a bloody tent. Is your own company that bad, mate? But you also got to be able to enjoy your own company too. They say, all of humanity's problems stem from a man's inability to sit quietly alone in a room together with himself. Or something like that. And it's true. I tend to talk to myself a bit. But I can imagine that too much of my own chatter would send me mad. I know it sent me misses a little bit loopy. Yeah, your own head can be your best mate or your worst enemy, depending on if you let the positive or the negative run the show. You can convince yourself that everything's A number one. Or, on the contrary, you can convince yourself your life is a shit show, no matter how good you got it. And unfortunately, our brains are geared on focusing on the latter. You know what I mean? You could ask 30 people what they think about you. And 29 of those people could say they think you're a top bloke. And one, just one, could say you're a bit of a tosser. And all you seem to focus on is that one Bogan's opinion. And for all you know, he could just be jealous of you or something. So why is it we can't stand to be alone? Well, it doesn't help that the world today is geared to keep us occupied or have someone constantly in our face or in our ear. No wonder we freak out when we're alone, especially now with all this social media BS. You seem to have a thousand odd people in your back pocket or in your hand 24-7. Don't get me wrong, technology nowadays has its pros and cons. And it's great for keeping us better connected, but it also stops us from interacting. I mean, I like the fact that I can have a conversation with my son in another country, but I don't like the fact that when my other son and his family come for tea, half the time they've got their heads in the phones at the table and can't hold a face-to-face conversation. When I was a kid... I remember Barry, the old bloke from across the road's missus, passed away. And then he was gone about a week later. I'm not sure if he died from a broken heart or whether he played a part in his own demise. But it happened. And it always made me think about how we could be that reliant on somebody that we couldn't bear to be without him. I've always tended to like my own company. After all, I'm the most intelligent bloke I know. But I've never really been in a situation of not having anyone available to me for any great amount of time. But who knows when and if the day will come when you've just got nobody anymore. For now, if I'm alone, it's by choice. But not everyone has that privilege. But it goes to show that being alone or lonely can really take a toll on a fella. That's why it's important to stay social. There's several blokes down in the shed that are purely there for the fact that it's the only social interaction they get, other than the Meals on Wheels folks and the bloke behind the counter at the local shop when they buy their paper of a morning. But that's okay. As long as you're getting your fill of friendship. Sometimes you just got to make a bit of an effort and get amongst it all. And make some social connections. And I reckon the shed is a great place to start. Anyway, fellas, i better go and treat the dog for another walk again before he needs lap band surgery. Anyway, fellas, catch you later. See you next time. Bye.
0: Well, it's time to pull the curtain down on another. Exciting episode of the Shed Wireless. Now, don't forget to tell us what you think about Max Music Shack. Simply head to YouTube and search Max Music Shack, you'll get the playlist there. And if you like it, let me know at the Shed Wireless at menshed.net. Share the podcast with your shedding mates. Give them a hand to follow along on Spotify if you can, or send them to www.menshed.org forward slash the shed wireless. Until next time, folks, for the love of shedding. It don't matter if you work with wood or fabricating metal is the thing you understood is your game everyone's the same yeah we can do it all at the men's shed short fat tall skinny hairy ball in the shed it's welcome one and all share the skills you know we're all having a go there's a helping hand in the men's shed